Hello. Thank you for listening to the Legalese podcast. Um, We are a podcast bringing you uh, truth, power, and awareness. My name is Mel Marie, and I'm your host for today. So let's get into hot topics before we get into the case. So the first topic is that the Senate Republicans blocked voting right the voting rights bill in a 50 to 50 vote. The bill is called the For the People Act of 2021, aka um, HR1. And the bill addresses voter access, election integrity and security, campaign finance, and ethics for the three branches of government. Specifically, um, it expands voter registration um, for automatic and same-day registration. It allows for voter access, like I said, so they can vote by mail or early voting. And it also limits removing voters from voter rolls. Take that as you will. The next topic is Zach Weiner. He was running for city council in New York. Anyway, he had a leaked video of him participating in BDSM. And so the video had image of him being gagged, a dominatrix behind him, his, him like in leather, um, like tied up and having like nipple clamps. And he made basically made a statement regarding that this was a private video and a private ma- matter that shouldn't have been released um, and that he was human and things like that. I... There's two conversations that are being happening regarding him. One is having a politician with a clean record with like no videos and things like that out. And then the other topic is, can we be realistic regarding people exploring their sexuality or how they choose to um, engage in sexual acts and still be a civil servant? And I think that he can do his job and still have sex the way he chooses or things like that. And that shouldn't affect his job as long as he's making policies that are benefiting people. Um, it shouldn't matter. Uh, but yeah, so I don't know if he won that seat or not. I don't know much about the voting that's going on in New York. So another thing that is happening in New York, um, the Appellate court has suspended Rudy Giuliani's uh, law license. They said that they suspended the license due to him making false statements and alleging rampant fraud to try to overturn um, 45's loss in the 2020 election. So now, next, um, there was a study done about a subway and they... The study said that they failed to find to find any tuna DNA inside of Subway's tuna sandwich, and they specifically said that we cannot identify the species. So if you are um, eating at Subway, shame on you. Um, but be safe when eating that sandwich because it's not an actual fish. Next topic. So last year during the BLM. Uh, riots in Atlanta, there was two, there were two college students that were assaulted by cops and um, it made big headlines uh, across the U.S. And they are currently playing on suing 
uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and also the police department. So hopefully they win regarding that assault um, from those cops. And we had an episode called Stuck in Traffic. Um, it's regarding uh, Crystal Kaiser and the sex trafficking or human trafficking that was occurring onto her. And the court just made a lot, well, not a lot, but they allowed for her to plead a self-defense. So um, hopefully we can get good results from that case and I'll keep you updated regarding what we find. Next is uh, Drake Bell. I want to say we talked about him last episode or the episode prior, and he pled guilty to the attempted endangerment and disseminating harmful materials to juveniles. Um, Prosecutors said that he was in a relationship or trying to develop a relationship with a 15-year-old girl and sent her uh, inappropriate messages, and he now faces up to two years in prison. So we'll see about that. Uh, John... McAfee, if you had a computer <laughs> uh, in the early 2000s, you know, like he had like that uh, antivirus software. It was like on all computers and stuff. Well, he was found dead inside of prison for a suspected suicide. Basically the same thing that happened to Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and this happened after he was cleared to be extradited to the U.S. Um, on Wednesday and he was facing charges of tax evasion and security fraud and was being held in prison um, pending the, extra, you know, like I said, being extradited to the U.S. after being arrested um, last October. And the interesting thing, and people are saying that this could be a conspiracy about surrounding his death, is because he made a tat, he had a tattoo a year or two ago and said that he would never kill himself. And it's like dollar sign whacked. And he said, made a public post on Twitter, I believe. And it said, if I am ever found dead in a prison, I didn't do it. It was someone else's doing. I would never do that. And today, I want to say his wife made a post saying that she knows that it was a lie. Like, he did not kill himself. And she's going to see what was the cause of his actual death. So if I find more information, I'll keep you updated. Next. Um, in Miami, there was a building collapse, um, in Surfside, um, there, someone said it was a bombing. There's not, the information is too clear what caused the damage or what happened. To me, it didn't make sense. And we're still waiting on more developing information. At the time, there was like four people dead and 159 people missing. Um, there was... Currently, I want to say 99 people remain uncounted for um, following the building collapse. And this is, like I said, this is the most recent information I can find. And they said at least 10 people are currently treated for injuries. Um, The mayor, Burkett, said that. And that the manager of the the Surfside Town uh, manager, his name is Andrew Hyatt, and he said... Um, that search and rescue efforts could take at least a week. And emergency response officials announced, you know, that family reunification centers has been open in Surfside. And what is it? The governor, DeSantis, he contacted Biden, President Biden, regarding uh, calling it like a state of emergency and trying to get some form of relief. So they're going to try to get that for the people. It doesn't make sense to me. 
it doesn't make sense how a building could just collapse like that. I don't, I don't get that, but it's a, a sad, a sad case. So hopefully people are found and um, hopefully people are safe and can be accounted for. And lastly, who, okay. So the Olympics is happening in Tokyo and I do want to give you some honorable mention mentions first, Simone, uh, Manual, she's a gold medalist and she's a swimmer. And so she got number one recently. Um, so congrats to her. Uh, there's a woman named Raven Saunders and she does shot put. It's like a, like a ball and you throw it uh, in like a certain distance. Anyway, but yes, yeah, so she broke record um, doing that. And she broke her own record too. Um, so she broke record and she's from Charleston, South Carolina. And then we have Simone Biles doing amazing things on the beams and all the flips and tricks. And then lastly, Shikari, I'm, no, I'm sorry, Shikari Richardson. And she is like now the fastest woman in the US and she won the 100 meters of race. Um, for the track and field, and she secured her spot on the Tokyo Games. So congrats to them, all the black girl magic. We love to see it. So hopefully they do well, and I'll try to keep be updated and see um, what, what they got going on. Also, Shikari is, and uh, she has a girlfriend, and it's Pride Month, so that's even better. Representation everywhere. And the second person, the last person I'm going to talk about, his name is Carl Nassib. He made like a big, uh, he was trending because he's like a football player and he came out as gay and he plays for the Raiders. And so he made a big post regarding that, you know, he's out and he didn't feel like he, you know, he loves who he loves and it's really not that big of a deal, but he has a great supportive team around him. So Shikari and Carl Nassib are very pivotal because today we will be talking about a case uh, regarding the LGBT community. So after break, I'll be right back and give you the case. Okay, so let's get into the case. So today we're going to discuss the historic shooting at Pulse nightclub. And this case reveals how two guns and domestic terrorism uh, resulted in a community stronger than before. Pulse nightclub is a gay nightclub. So I'm just going to go over what LGBTQIA abbreviations mean and then give you some facts and then go into the case. So the L means lesbian, and that's women who's attracted to other women. G represents gay, men who are uh, attracted to other men. Um, bisex B means bisexual, and that's for a person who is attracted to both men and women. Uh, T represents transgender, and so that's a person who may be born one gender, but represents or presents themselves as another. And Q represents queer or someone that's questioning identity or sexuality. And intersex represents um, a person who is has both male and female uh, characteristics. So they may be born 
um, with one uh, sexual, like a sexual organ, but then their features are different. And then A means represents asexual. So that's like a lack of sexual attraction um, to another person. And so that's just a short part of the list. The whole um, list regarding the LGBTQIA is longer. And so it's a big spectrum. Some interesting facts about um, the community is that the original pride flag was designed by artist Gilbert Baker in 1978 and it had eight stripes, which included hot pink representing sexuality, um, turquoise representing magic and arts, indigo, um, along with like the current six colors that are on the flag, which is red representing life, orange representing healing, yellow um, for sunlight, green for nature, blue for harmony, and then the violet purple for spirit. An interesting fact of during the World War II, pink triangles were used as a symbol to shame uh, the gay male prisoners. And now it has been reclaimed by communities and is a representation or symbol for gay rights. Um, and in Greek, so Sappho, which is a Greek female poet, um, she was born on the isle, island of Lesbos and was basically wrote about love poems regarding other women. Um, and that is where the word basically originates for the word lesbian. And Lesbos is also a popular attraction for the LGBT um, tourism you know, spot. And lastly, uh, Coretta Scott King was an advocate for a gay rights. Coretta Scott King was Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife and she fought um, during the civil rights movement, um, before the Civil Rights Act, to include LGBT citizens as a protected class. So that's that's very interesting and you know cool to learn. So now let's talk about the shooter. Um, his last name was Mateen, and so that's how I'll be referencing him during the case. So Mateen was born in New Hyde Park, New York in 1986. And so he grew up in Afghan culture and his parents were married and he had three sisters. Um, a family friend has said that Mateen and his family would frequent the mosque often and uh, he would enjoy playing basketball, football, skating, and video games um, with uh, the family friends and other people that were um, at the mosque. Um, typically in social settings and in school, um, Mateen was described as the odd kid. Um, for example, he was known to have bullied other female classmates and was rude um, to people. And by the time he was in high school, his family moved to Stort, Florida, and that's where he finished his high school education there. And in 2000, when he was 14 years old, he was expelled after um, fighting, um, he, after a fight, and he was arrested and charged with battery. Luckily for him, the charges were later dropped, but he was also sent to like an alternative school. And this is where they saw a very interesting or, I guess, 
a different behavior from him. He was suspended for celebrating the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and then he was heard referencing Osama bin Laden as his uncle. And so allegedly, like, his father came to the school after hearing this and slapped him, like, in front of, like, the, you know, teachers. But that's what led to... I guess a very tumultuous time in his life. And during this period, his father would also was also an informant for the FBI and worked with them for over 10 years. And however, on social media or um, regarding public affairs, his father would show support for the Taliban. It would make like political posts online. And so for support for that group. And interestingly enough, Mateen expressed his love for law enforcement growing up. So he ended up becoming a correctional officer at a juvenile center and then was a security guard for nine years. So at the age of 23, Mateen married Satora Yousefi in 2009. And Satora basically described Mateen as on hinge. She said he was homophobic, he was violent, and he was full of hatred and would regularly beat her. And due to her the abuse she experienced, they separated after four months, but they did not officially get divorced until basically like two years later, until July 2011. And this time, uh, in this year, in April 2011, he met his second wife, Noor Salman, online. They got connected and they were married a few months later in September. And a year or so after, they had their son. So between 2013 and 2014, Mateen was interviewed three times by the FBI due to potential allegiance to the Fort Hood shooter and to ISIS. And after investigation and interviews he had with the FBI, um, they deemed Mateen not a threat. Okay, so three weeks before the shooting, Mateen went to a gun shop and was requesting large amounts of uh, body armor and ammunition. And the Salesman turned him down because he thought he was being suspicious and um, the salesman notified the authorities, but the authorities didn't do anything. On May 21st, 2016, Mateen and his family went to the mall with his family. And this is where Mateen pulled up an article basically calling about ISIS calling for attacks um, in the United States during Ramadan. And Mateen had four Facebook accounts and posted the following statements. He said, now taste Islamic state vengeance. And in the next few days, you will see attacks from the Islamic state in the United States. On June 4th, he went to a gun store and picked up a Sig Sauer MCX rifle um, and then went to the West Palm Beach area in Florida on the 5th, the next day, he purchased a Glock 9mm handgun. On the 8th, he went to the Bass Pro Shop. It's like a, I guess like a sporting, like 
type of shop where you can get like guns and like fishing stuff, things like that. And he bought three magazines um, for his guns. And then on the 9th, June 9th, he went to practice, he went to a shooting range to practice. And the day before the shooting, June 11th, four hours before the shooting, he was seen wandering around Disney Springs and he went through Interstate 4 or I-4 um, to be to drive through the Eve Orlando nightclub area. And then he circled around to Pulse around 1.30 in the morning. Before the shooting, though, he called Channel 13. It's a local news station in the area and admitted to that, admitting that he was going to commit a crime and that it was for ISIS and the Islamic State. So Pulse nightclub, like I said before, was a nightclub and it was deemed a sanctuary with that was close knit. People knew each other. It was a fun place to like let loose and have fun. And it felt like a house party uh, for many of the, the, of the people that attended. And around 2 a.m., that was the last call. And typically for last calls, that's like the last time you get drinks, you know, everyone's like, Greeting, like uh, saying their goodbyes, doing their last dances. The club is about to close around this time. And so some people were waiting around for their drinks. Um, and then they heard, and they were dancing, and then they heard a shooter. That's when Mateen entered. And he had two firearms, two uh, the assault rifle, and then the nine millimeter handgun. And this is when he walked through the main area and was firing his weapons. And then he looped throughout the club. And so now I'm going to share some reports regarding what people heard and what people were seeing at the time. Okay, so let's see. At 2 o'clock in the morning, that's when that happened. At 2.02, shots were fired. People didn't know what it was. Um, some people thought it was, like, just, you know, noise. They didn't realize it was shooting until they smelled the gunpowder. Some people said it was, on like, the 4th of July and that they, were, they heard three to four shots occurring. Okay, so here is the first 911 call. So that's the first call that they're getting regarding a shooting. Um, the lady, the dispatcher was like, pulls, like pulls, like where's this location? And was asking her questions. So at this time, people are frantic. They're scattering. They're like, what's going on? And then they, that's when they realize a shooting is occurring. And so some people were trapped. Some people were hiding behind um, the speakers, some people were um, 
on the floor thinking that if they can get as low as possible that they'll be able to escape the shooter. And so here's the story or here's what some person is saying. You're in the sitting room? Yeah. Okay. Stay in the sitting room. Stay at a safe location or get to a safe location if you can. We have people on the way to the club. Okay? So, you just heard that people were went to bathrooms, like I said, they were hiding um, behind equipment, and they were trying to leave, they were trying to figure out who the shooter was, it was dark in that area. And so they're trying to see if they can not engage with the shooter as much and escape. So at this time, let's see. Okay. So around 2.48, and this is going on for like 40 minutes or so. So around 2.48, the shooter went to the bathroom. He went to the northern corridor of the bathroom and then the south corridor of the bathroom. And he stayed there for three hours. He did shoot some of the the survivors that were there. And he was also, his gun jammed in the process. So he was trying to Google how to fix his gun jamming and how to uh, basically connect with local enforcement and see, tell them why he, he was committing those crimes. And as I said, he was saying, he told them that he was committing the crimes because of his allegiance to ISIS and to uh, um, you know, and he didn't want them to shoot. So here's the call. I'll let you hear some of that as well. Tell me what's going on right now, Omar. What's going on is that the airstrikes need to stop. Yeah. To stop. And then based on his conversations, uh, pretty quickly realized that we were dealing with someone who was self-radicalized uh, and, a, and a terrorist. Hi there, this is Orlando Police. Who am I speaking with, please? You're speaking with the person who pledged to the legions of the Islamic State. I think I heard about the guy who captured the wall. Okay. Um, can you tell me where you are right now so I can get you some help? No, because you have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They're killing a lot of innocent people. So what, what am I to do here? when people, my people are getting killed over there. You get what I'm saying? I, I do. I completely get what you're saying. What I'm trying to do is prevent anybody they else from getting in. the U.S. airstrikes. So you heard his reasoning, and it wasn't regarding 
someone's sexuality or their race. It was solely because he wanted the U.S. to stop uh, bombing other Middle Eastern countries. And you heard the negotiator saying, where are you? What are you doing? Etc. Well, at this time, again, he was in the bathroom for like three hours. So the cops were trying to get people uh, from the the club and trying to move these bodies and sort through the dead bodies and those who were alive and see if they can transport them to the hospitals. Um, They had so much police department there. Um, They had to get like trucks, like a a F-150, like Ford type of trucks and put these bodies and the people there um, in the back of the, in the bed of the trucks so they can take them to the hospital. And at first, the people in the hospital were like, oh, maybe it's just like a few people. You know, it's not going to be too bad. Um, It shouldn't be too bad. But then they realized that, no, this was a mass shooting that was occurring and bodies were starting to line up um, in the hospital. So hear them talk a little bit more about this. Okay. We quickly got about five patients, and that was a lot for us, and we thought maybe that was going to be it. And then they started lining up in the hallway. They weren't being brought in by ambulances. There was no paramedics coming in and giving us support and dropping them off. They were being dropped off in truckloads and in ambulance loads. So that was going on, and that was like one of the local... A hospitals um, that was getting these people there and they were con- trying to contact their families. Some people weren't identified um, in that location. So let's continue on. So remember when we heard one of the calls, the guys was saying that he was stuck in the dressing room and uh, he didn't know where the shooter was, but he was safe and he wanted he wanted the 911 operator to stay on the line with him because he thought that he was going to die. Well, the police devised a plan um, to basically get them, set the people free, and they just needed the help of this member. So this is what they decided to do. And he assisted them as much as possible in the process. So, and and remember, this is only feet away from one of the bathrooms where the suspect was holding hostages. So they devised this plan and they tell the patrons inside this bathroom, there were eight of them in there, and they said, look, this is what we're going to do. We are going to push that wall-mounted air conditioning unit in very carefully and very slowly, but here's what we need for to happen. Uh, number one, we need you to catch that on the inside and not make a noise, not make one sound. And so they did. And so they pushed that in and they they gently uh, let it dangle by the cord and they said, OK, we're going to we're going to start you know, still talking to that person on the phone. We're we're going to start taking you out one by one. Oh, and one more thing. You you are going to be the last one out. And you can imagine um, him with his surprise. And he goes, I, you know, I need to know everyone else is out there. So I won't know until you tell me on the phone. So one by one, eight patrons uh, crawled out of that that dressing room and were saved. And this is all going on while the suspect is holding hostages in the other bathroom and talking to our negotiators. 
Isn't that incredible that they were able to save that many people? So again, so the shooting, basically the hostage situation was lasting for over three hours and around five o'clock, uh, the cops knew that there was explosives in the car. Mateen said it when he called them. He said he was going to try to kill them. If it's not inside, they were going to do explosives. And he also said that he had explosives on him, on his person as well. So around 5 o'clock, um, the cops decided that they were going to do an explosive breach on the outside to save as much of the hostages as possible. And... He told them to try to like move away from the wall, try to warn them that they were going to bombard the club. The shoot, the shooter, they did that. Debris is everywhere. The shooter fired two shots and at a person in the stall before anything happened. And then the wall breach occurred and then the bomb went off. And so the, while this is happening, the shooter shot tried to shoot at a cop and someone else that was trying to shot at a cop and hit the cop in the, uh, the head uh, in his helmet and around 5 13 a.m um they heard the hand like the the shooting of the handgun again and the shooter uh, fired three to five more rounds and we're firing at, into people who are already dead in the stalls. And so someone tried to exit the North bathroom. And so he exited the North bathroom and took the nine millimeter and fired two more shots. Sorry, I fast forwarded earlier. So he exited the bathroom, fired two shots. One hit a survivor in the calf and the other one hit the law enforcement in the helmet that I was referring to earlier. At 5.15, they shot him. Like, again, there was, like, tons of cops there. So they shot him a couple times, and he was down. And they started to try to get the hostages out. And at 5.53, officially, um, one of the cops came up to him, was asking him questions, trying to see if he had, if they were going to, like, set off any of the explosives, things like that. And then shot him and gave him that last execution shot. And he was pronounced dead at that time. Overall, Mateen fired 186 times from the rifle that he had and 22 times from the 9mm rifle. So I discussed about the things that was going on, what he was doing, but... Law enforcement had five uh, engagements with him where they either tried to shoot at him um, or tried to stop him from outside of the club. And so I'm going to discuss what they did. So the first time was an off-duty cop was outside and he heard what was going on. And so he was in the parking lot when the shots began and he tried to move with the shots. He called on the radio that there was shots being fired at the club and that people were, people were exiting. Um, and he moves to the double doors and he sees the shooter and he takes aim and shoots for the shooter shoots at the shooter four times. However, majority of the shots that he shot at the shooter hit the double doors. And so 
The second interaction or engagement he had with the shooter, he went to the side of the club. I want to say around the Orange Avenue that was discussed earlier. Um, and he sees the shooter going east and he goes towards the patio and he sh sees the shooter again. He shoots into the club three times. Um, the shooter was the only one standing at the time. And three to four minutes later, nothing, he didn't hit the shooter, obviously. And so three to four minutes later, a team of officers here shooting, um, the shooter shooting his final shots in the bathroom. And again, that's like on the uh, north, uh, opposite side of the club in the north and south corridor area. And so they break the glass of the club to enter in and move into the bar area of the club. And they focus on that north and south bathroom. And the last, no, no, it's not, sorry. So in the south bathroom, oh, there's, uh, they see an individual exit the bathroom. The individual does not comply with them. They're telling the person to stop, listen. Two cops fired at the individual. And one cop shot uh, once and hit a mirror. And the second shot three times and hit the door or the back wall. The individual that came out did not die. They just were, they just went back into the bathroom and then waited a couple more moments. And then that same civilian comes out and complies with what the officers were saying. And the cops come in and save him. And at this point, they were trying to save the civilians as much as possible by punching holes in the bathroom to get them out, as we heard. Um, and sometime later, they did hear more gunshots. Um, and so they threw flash bombs and to get the shooter from the bathroom. And uh, the shooter appeared in the hole that the bomb created. He came out and shot guns. 13 cops shot, uh, shot fire, fired their arms. 10 officers and three sheriffs were the ones who did this. And they shot a minimum of 178 times. And they hit the shooter seven times. Let's do the math. They shot 172 times. And they hit the shooter seven times. Okay. So the shooter, and this is, again, this is from their perspective, of what they were seeing. And so after the seven times, once uh, Mateen came out, he was down. Like I said, that one shooter, that one cop came in and gave that last kill. So the aftermath of the shooting, the shooting was the deadliest incident in the history of violence against the LGBT community in the United States. It resulted in 49 people dying and 53 people being injured and was also the deadliest terrorist attack in the United States since September 11th, 2001, and was the deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman in U.S. history until 2017 Las Vegas shooting. Remember when I, a couple of moments ago, I showed you the video of, or played the video of the people at the hospital describing what the scene was like? Well, that next day, or later on in the day, because it happened in the morning, families were surrounding the hospital. They were crying. They were praying. They were just very emotional. 
the community came out and in droves. They were at blood banks and they were wanted to help the survivors. And there were so much people donating blood that the blood banks had to turn people away. And at that time, they didn't take the blood of gay people in Florida or maybe with that particular blood bank, but because of the shooting, they allowed, they allowed that to occur. And after that, they tried to help survivors. There was funds that were uh, mass donations around the world of people, from people. Uh, They created memorials outside of the club and around the hospitals. And let's see. And many of the survivors spent weeks in the hospital and had surgeries and had to deal with physical therapy. Many of them had like burned wheelchairs and crutches, things like that. One of the moms of the survivor, um, she created the Drew Project, and that's basically to a community for the LGBT community and allies to get support and mentorship, things like that. The city wanted to buy a pulse for $2 million, but the owner, Barbara, she did not want it to sell it, and she just wanted it to be a sanctuary for the victims. There was a video that I was going to show. Let me see if I can get it for you. And it was regarding the pulse survivors talking about their experience, what they saw, um, the effects, the mental effects of the shooting, and what it did to them. So let me find that for you. Okay. It died. You know what, you know that? I'll always smell the gunpowder and I can probably even taste it. You know, when I do stuff in big crowds or in clubs and stuff like that, of course, uh, you know, what comes to mind is exits and you know and, and safety you know and that's not something i used to think about before everybody says how could you still go out at night i'm not going to show fear so if i'm going to crawl in the shell and and not keep living my life then 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 the terrorists won no we're not gonna let them win and that's such a, a great statement that they shouldn't be living in fear because of the things that have happened. And I do wanna show, well, play for you one of their experiences trying to escape and what was going on at that time. So let me play that for you. We're gonna get out of here. We ran out of the bathroom only to walk maybe 12 steps from the women's bathroom to where the door was. But you can only imagine 90 to 100 people trying to go through one little door. When I was coming down the ladder and I opened the door, it's like a horror film, you know, like sparks flying off of the TVs. There's no sound, but you can still hear things falling. Now I got my hands up and I'm walking and I'm stepping on bodies. I'm stepping on sticky blood and the smell is is. Like, I can still taste it right now. I'm just talking about it. I can taste it. This is horrible. We all ran down. And I remember um, 
looking back and was like, where is my best friend? And I remember I got a Snapchat um, text from my best friend and he had said, um, I was like, are you okay? And he said, actually, no, I'm not. I've been shot. When I got up, um, I remember my friend telling me that it was on the news and that I was he was gone. And so they basically gave very vivid um, descriptions of trying to escape. Again, it's a club. It was around time where people were um, trying to leave. You know, they were just doing their final, I don't know, their final activities. And they could not even escape because there were so many people that were trying to leave. They were walking over dead bodies. And I just want to play that, the mental effect of what, happened to one of the the DJ and so he still goes to events and this is what he experiences when he works there like weddings are sweet 16s and all of a sudden a kid uses a balloon plays around and then pops and I'm just like looking at everybody nobody's moving I'm just like but then I'm shocked I still feel like Damn it, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, that kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. But I'm slowly getting better at it. So he talks about his PTSD. And so him even hearing a noise um, kind of sets him off. And he didn't know how to react. But he has to realize, like, oh, no, this is not dangerous. I'm not dying. So that's just one of the many effects that people were experiencing so a trial did occur, and his wife, um, last name Salman, she was taken into federal custody and was going to be charged with aiding and embedding in the attack and obstruction of justice because she drove her husband to the, uh, past the club earlier um, in the evening, and she was there with him when she got the, when he got the guns. She said that she was unaware of his actions and what he was going to do. Okay. And then she was facing life in prison. One of her teachers spoke on her behalf um, during the trial, and she didn't want to be identified in interviews. And the teacher said that Salman had learning difficulties and had difficulties understanding the effects of, understanding cause and effect of actions. The wife was acquitted since her team said there was not sufficient proof of her saying that she was involved, um, whether it was inter interrogation with the FBI or in general. And that was via audio or video. And they also said that she had a low IQ and basically insinuating that she was easily swayed and that she was incapable of making decisions for herself. And um, that Mateen was the one in control of the relationship and the decisions. Due to the backlash of her being acquitted, the jury released a statement and they said, so the statement said, a verdict of not guilty did not mean that we thought she was unaware of what the shooter was planning to do. On contrary, we were convinced she did know. The bottom line is that based on the letter of the law, the instructions provided by the court, 
we were presented with a verdict of not guilty. So that is what happened in the end. And remember when I discussed that Mateen's dad worked with the FBI? Well, they did an investigation on him um, to find any of his like trans his financial transactions that were made um, to see if they were given to any terrorist groups and things like that. But that is the case of the Pulse shooting. Um, I hope this enlightened you about the situation, gave you, you know, you learned something new. And the song of the week is called Lost You by Snow Allegra. And you can also check us out on Apple, uh, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and any other place that listens, you know, has podcasts available. Have a great day. Thank you for speaking our language and be safe. Bye.